You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, it's so good to be here. Thank you so much for coming on a Thursday night. I think it's a Thursday, right? It's been a, it's been a crazy week. I got to uh, go to Nashville, and then uh, I was in Columbia, Tennessee. Never been there. Um, and then I was in Memphis yesterday, and now I'm in Birmingham. And tomorrow I'll be back in Charlottesville. So it's um, just, to, I've been looking forward to this. Uh, and uh, so my wife has been looking forward to me coming home, I think. But it's been a really, it's, been, it's always a treasure to, to be here with you, especially to talk about this book. You know, I, um, a lot of you here know my father. And um, one of the things that uh, I don't say in the book, though I included in the dedication, is we've been using this term low anthropology for years. And my editor, who uh, edited Seculosity but didn't edit the new book, he was he was um, he, when he found out what the title was going to be, he said, "Dave, I'm sure it's going to be great, but I would have fought you tooth and nail over that title." No one likes an ology. Ologies are intimidating. Uh, no one wants to go back to school uh, except for a few people. Um, well, I said, but, but well, I think people like to look smart at least. So if you can, you can give them something that makes them feel important in the title, then they can put it on their shelf and at least not, it won't be embarrassed by it. But um, I had to title it Low Anthropology because that's the word we've been using for so long. And I've, no, I've noticed over the years that it was a... a an, a, a concept and a phrase that when people got it, they they got it. You know, they would they would um, use it in kind of fluent fluently, and they'd start to tell other people about why well, I have a low anthropology. Like, huh? As if other people would know what that meant. <laughs> but I knew it was the right phrase to use. So then I said, well, you know, I got to find out where this comes from if I'm going to use this and title a book after it. And uh, I, I, I go to the first person I know to ask these things, which is my brother Simeon. Um, if you want to know Twilight Zone episodes, you go to the old man. But if you want to talk about actual theology, you talk to his, his son. And so I asked Simeon, like, what is, um, where's low anthropology from? And he said, he said I don't know. You, know. you know, we talk about anthropology. and It's a very traditional way for theologians and philosophers to speak about human nature. And uh, so then I asked, I think I might have even asked John O'Leinbaugh, where does this phrase low anthropology come from? And he said, you know, I, I've only ever heard it from your dad. And so I called, up, I called him up, the old man. Uh, just kidding. He's like frozen in time here at 45, but let me assure you, he is no longer that. Uh, if I have gray hair, he's as white. Um, and I said, Dad, where... Where did you first hear the phrase low anthropology? Was it Fitzsimmons Allison? Was it uh, Moltmann? Was it some one of these teachers? Did you find it, you know, when you were uh, doing some degree? And he said, well, David, now come to think of it. Um, uh, yes, um, yes, David. Uh, Mary, hold on just a moment. Uh, uh, you know, I... I, you know, I think that I, I, I coined that, David. <laughs> he, uh, no one calls me David except for him so, um, and my mother. So I said, I guess you did coin it. So there, there, that moment I said, you know, forget my old editors. We're going with the phrase low anthropology. Come hell or high water, that's what it's about. Now, how, if we're going to talk about low anthropology, and don't worry, I will define it for those of you who haven't read the book yet, but um, how do we do a cover <laughs> 
Texas. How do you create a cover about low anthropology and make it a book that, or something that someone would actually want to read? Um, so what I did is uh, we contacted they or my um, my publishing company. Can I hold this actually? My publishing company was kind enough to employ the person who actually does a lot of the Mockingbird design work, and they said, "Oh, we really want to, you know, we want something." design forward, and so let's get your person. I thought that was very touching. Um, and so I called Tom, Tom Martin. Now, he's not a, a Christian of any uh, stripe, um, which helps because it means you have to be clear and you have to sort of make sure that what you're doing is visually understandable, not just to a, a select people. Um, and I said, well, Tom, the book is really about revealing what's actually going on in life with other people and ourselves. In a way, but I want to. It's revealing this what human nature is really like, but in a way that I hope is playful and inviting, that maybe sends everything flying, but is is hopeful. And so he designed this, and I thought it was perfect. The only addition I made was there was an apple, and I said, make sure there's a bite taken out of it. (laughs) If Steve Jobs can do it, so can I. And I, he had a big, um, I think it was like an iris as the flower. It might have even been a rose. And I said, no, uh, we're going to leave one thing on the table, and that is going to be an Easter lily. So if you know, you know. You get the code. That's God. That's Jesus, risen Christ, right there. Um, but I also love the fact that if this is a magician, he's not good at his job. Right? I tried to do this. We recreated it for the trailer to the book. We recreated it like 30 times. And some of, it is, is, some of that is um, in our video we made for it. And there was a Bible study going on downstairs uh, at the church when we did this. And they were not happy. Because we sent a lot of things flying. We broke a lot of dishes that day. Um, because we couldn't find an actual tablecloth that wasn't, I guess, very tactile. You know, so um, it was a lot of fun. We ate a lot of, you know, destroyed donuts. Um, but that's what the book's about. So when people ask you about the cover, if they do, if we get that far, um, it's about revealing. It's about revealing, but in a way that's hopefully not threatening, that leaves hope on the table, but maybe sends some things flying. And I also said the colors have to be upbeat, because if this thing looks glum, or if it looks like a, like a you know a walk through a dark wood or something like that, so I don't know. You've you've seen religious book covers before that make you want to <laughs> run in the opposite direction. Um, and so he came back with this yellow, and my wife, when she first saw it, she said it's it's really yellow. <laughs> um, the other cool thing is that they uh, the style guide that Brazos Press Brazos is a part of Baker, and they're kind of think of themselves as thought leaders. And they refused to go with the slanted text. They said that that was so lowbrow. And I I said, over my dead body, we are doing slanted text. I want this to look like a comic book. So there you go. That's the reason for the cover. All right. The book, Low Anthropology, is, um, it's, when I say that in the subtitle, it's the unlikely key to a gracious view of others and yourself. I really think that that's true. And ultimately, though, what I'm, what I'm really doing in the book is I'm trying to make the case for belief in God and for people who don't even understand why that would be alluring in the first place. 
And I think in order to do that, you have to start with human experience and human nature. And you have to eject as much Christian jargon as you possibly can. Because in my experience as a, as a person in ministry and churches for, for many years now, it, we don't even realize how much religious words we use when talking to people that maybe don't understand them. So <clears throat> that's why I used uh, – that's what the book is actually trying to do. It's like a handbook for human nature that is making the case for God. Not this type of Christianity or that type of Christianity. Though, of course, it's a, I'd like to think that it's bathed in grace just by nature of the approach it takes. Um, but that's what's happening. Now, it's part of like the, if you read the intro, I start with uh, the idea of imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. You guys know what imposter syndrome is? The great, the cartoon that I use, if I had a PowerPoint, which I've spared you my PowerPoint skills, but if I did, there's this cartoon I've used over the years, and it, it, it never has, no, it's, it's never not connected with people. It's a cartoon of a, crowded street and people are all walking in different you know places and you have old and young and men and women and, and, and black and white and people of all sort of stripes and uh, they all have thought bubbles going up out of their heads but they're they're they've got the same thought everyone is individual but they're all thinking the exact same thing and i i what, what do you think they're thinking so Everybody knows what's going on, and I'm the only one. What is it? All these people really seem to have it together, and I still have no idea what's going on. When I put that out to the crowd at St. Peter's in Columbia, some woman said, WTF was what, was what, was what it obviously says. The idea here is, though, that we're bonded together in our imposter syndrome. In working with college students, I've noticed all of them feel like no one... Uh, that they're the only one who doesn't really know what's going on. And working, talking to young parents or parents of young children, I've often, very often, uh, heard the refrain, uh, are we the only ones making it up as we go along? Uh, and then I, I, I thought, though, maybe, you know, when you grow up and, and you become a real grown-up, uh, that sort of stuff... Um, uh, you, you, you finally have some idea what's going on. And so I preached a sermon about this imposter syndrome, and I took a risk, and I sort of said, I think it's not just a syndrome, I think it's a condition. And this very, very sophisticated lady, uh, who I'd always been intimidated by, because she was a, uh, one of these old uh, professors at UVA that's sort of an institution, right? Who taught both, like, three generations of people at UVA. She's a physics professor, one of the first female physics professors. Um, at the school, and she came up to me and she said, David, I thought, oh, what's she going to say? She, she corrected me one time about how I said Deborah Carr. And that, what's she going to say now? I said, I said, Kerr. She says, you know, it's Deborah Carr. Um, so I was bracing myself for some unsolicited correction. And uh, she, said, she said, you know, I spent the last 30 years scared to death that someone was going to find out that I never passed my prereq my last physics prereq for my PhD. She was retired. And I thought, well, you told the wrong guy. I'm going to report this to the provost. But it was, it was remarkable to me in that I all of a sudden, by the way, felt enormous sympathy and connection to this person. And I wanted to hear more. And I wanted to almost give her a hug, but we had a, we had a real moment there, and it was, it was beautiful. Um, 
And I, I, I got the sense that everyone in the room had, could relate to that silly cartoon. And so I thought, wow, this is a great way in to talk about human limitation, human confusion, and this sort of shared thing we call human nature. As, as Christians, we, we, we believe that we're what, created in the image of God and yet fallen from grace. What does that mean in sort of contemporary language and experience? Well, let's talk about anthropology. We all go through life with powerful, often unspoken ideas of what human beings are like, do we not? Um, For example, we believe that some people uh, never change. Or we believe that people can always change. Or we believe that those sorts of people never change. Uh, But more generally, what would we say human beings are good at? And what would we say they're not so good at? What are the principles that govern our behavior and make us distinctly human? That is our anthropology. That's what theologians and philosophers have often called our anthropology. This has nothing to do with the Australian outback or tribes in the Costa Rican forest or something like that. I don't know what, because I had to take an anthropology class in college, and it was very, you know, um, now today, maybe they're doing like uh, anthropology courses on sort of like East Coast preppies or something like that. But then it was very confusing and, and scary, and, and, and basically we were told, don't take that class. But um, whether we realize it or not, all of us have an anthropology, all of us have some sort of view of human nature, and that view is consciously or not uh, creating and inspiring expectations in our relationships, in our jobs, in our marriages, in our politics, and very much so in our faith, in our religious life. Um, It's bearing on our worldview, our anthropology, it's bearing on our worldview, and therefore our happiness cannot be overstated. So some anthropologies can lead to disappointment, anger, cynicism, other kinds can be energizing and life-giving. What they cannot be is non-existent. Everybody has an anthropology. And the contention of this book is that seeing people as they truly are, as opposed to how we would have them be, is a crucial ingredient in generating authentic compassion and lasting love. An accurate anthropology opens us up to all sorts of unexpected vistas of hope. Now, as many of you know, when my father talks about low anthropology, he's talking about how you can chart an anthropology according to, on a sort of continuum of high to low. And a high anthropology is usually the sunnier estimation of human beings. Uh, it's like a, it's, you run into grander visions of human enterprise, uh, optimistic assumptions. Uh, the ground zero for the proliferation of, of anthropologies is what? Graduation speeches. If you ever heard a graduation speech, you've heard a lot of ideas about what human beings are good at, what they're not as good at, what they should do, and how great they can possibly be. And so it's not an accident that Steve Jobs himself drew on what I would call a high anthropology when he told Stanford graduates in a very famous speech, he told them to have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow know what you truly want to become. Let that sink in for a second. Because on the low side of the anthropology continuum sit the more sober estimations. 
we find understandings of the human spirit is something that sort of veers like bad wheel alignment, like in a, in a sort of more malign direction. We, we have uh, that human beings cannot really flourish without assistance or constraint. You find descriptions of people as finite and blind and in many cases quite weak. One of the great patron saints of low anthropology is the writer Anne Lamott. Have any Anne Lamott readers in the... Um, Anne Lamott is a sort of a, she's, a, what would you describe her as, like a, um, a California hippie um, Christian mystic or something like that. She's a Presbyterian, in fact. Um, uh, and she's got dreadlocks, and she's really fun to read. She's got, always got zingers. Um, she, she was speaking to a group of graduates, and she said the following. She said, everyone is screwed up, broken, clingy, and scared even the people who seem to have it more or less together. They are much more like you than you would believe, so try not to compare your insides to their outsides. Right? Now, note your responses to Steve Jobs and Anne Lamott. Because on the one hand, yes, we laugh. Lamott is maybe exaggerating for effect. But they do sound a little harsh, those words. If I heard my son refer to himself as clingy, scared, and screwed up, I would say, there, there, son. You know, it's okay. You're just having a bad day. Um, uh, if you heard a friend say that about themselves, you would want to pat them on the back. Oh, they're, they're just really depressed right now. Don't go near them. Give them a wide berth. Um, and sure, I may be clingy and fearful, but that one guy, you know, Miles Rainier from high school, like he sure seemed comfortable in his own skin, right? We all have these people in our lives that are sort of burned into our retinas, whose, the letters of which still cause us to uh, have emotional responses at strange times. Um, a high anthropology views people as defined by their best days and their greatest achievements and their dreams and their aspirations. A low anthropology does not discount those things. But it maintains that it, a, the much more reliable through line of human nature is heartache, loss, self-doubt. The bulk of our mental energy is actually focused on subjects that would be embarrassing or even shameful if broadcast, and that our ability to do the right thing in any given situation is hampered by all sorts of unseen factors. Think about Steve Jobs, though. I mean. I, I've used this, I was asked on a podcast last week about, you know, that doesn't sound depressing to tell young people to follow their dreams and their intuitions. I said, it, it doesn't. I, I, I hear that. And to someone who's never heard a yes in their life, who's someone who's never been told that they have potential to contribute something meaningful, it is wonderful to hear that. I don't think Stanford graduates are in that category. <laughs> but I, I want to reserve the fact that pep talks like that are, have, have their place. For sure. And how fortunate those Stanford graduates were to walk away with the knowledge that they already possessed everything they needed to become the next Steve Jobs. But say you had a tough week. Say you've spoken sensitively to a loved one or fumbled the ball at work. Well, Lamont's description might all of a sudden strike you as more accurate. You might feel recognized by her words and a little burdened by Steve Jobs' exhortation. After all, you're no longer 19, you're 43, and you don't always like what you've become or where your intuitions have steered you. 
Or maybe you think, where is my courage? Why did Simeon get all the good intuition? <laughs> right? Or, I mean, and, and why did that other person get all the good intuition? Lamott's admission conveys compassion. You can feel your shoulders on knot. I can, at least. Steve Jobs' advice, not so much. His words convey pressure. And this is the great irony of a low anthropology. What sounds insulting is actually liberating. And what sounds liberating at first is actually oppressive and embittering. Now, we are living in a time, I don't need to tell you, that's marked by very deep division and acrimony. People from different backgrounds have never had a harder time talking to or listening to one another. And the result is a fraying sort of social fabric that affects our day-to-day with the worst kind of tribalism. You cannot turn on the TV or peruse a news website without breathing in some of those fumes. Much of our despair, I am convinced, and it is despair at root, is fueled by a superficial view of human nature. It's not an entirely false view, but it is superficial. It's a near default view of human nature that flatters us with fantasies about our capacities and our motivations, but fails to account for the actual data of our lives, leaving us lonelier and more burned out as a result. You know, people ask why, why you wrote the book, and, uh, you know, um, I wrote, Seculosity was written at a time, uh, you know, I was, I was in my 30s and I was thinking a lot about proving myself. And I was thinking a lot about um, feeling like I was enough or not enough and, that, and how that correlated to Christian's idea about justification and how, in fact, the, the gospel directly addresses that. This, um, this book is written more with loneliness and burnout in mind. I find those are the two, they're not buzzwords, they're actually painful realities of our world we're living in. If you look at the rates of people self-reporting loneliness, and not everyone feels like they can self-report loneliness, it's just, you know, eons further than what it used to be. There's all sorts of reasons behind that, but part of it has to do with the the anthropology that we have uh, imbibed. The other thing is, is burnout a view of human nature that demands more of us than we are capable of, that that both employers and employees have adopted sort of in concert, which leaves everyone feeling like they're on a treadmill to nowhere and always behind. So, I mean, do you ever feel like the burden to perform an ideal version of yourself? I feel like that that is a deeply alienating experience. And that leaves people lonely, because if you can't be your, you can't, if you cannot, if, if, if weakness is not tolerated, or only a very curated, careful, specific type of weakness is tolerated, uh, people never feel loved. Like you never, you don't feel loved if you're if you're posturing all the time. But here's the thing: by editing out the less savory stuff of our humanity, we also snuff out solidarity, empathy, vulnerability, and yes, love. Humor. All of a sudden, we think we're the only ones with problems, the only one barely hanging on, the only one who doesn't belong. But thank God the truth of who we are is much more comprehensive. So low anthropology is my uh, flimsy but hopefully colorful attempt to cut through the noise with hope, highlighting excuse me, the counterintuitive truth. That weakness and limitation actually function as a doorway not to self-loathing and shame, but to compassion, unity, grace, 
and ultimately God. I'm convinced that if you want to see an increase in hope and understanding and unity among the engulfing mercilessness of today, and especially if you want to communicate anything approaching the grace of God, well, you must begin with a low anthropology. And it's not coincidental that I found that religion in general and Christianity in particular makes very little sense in the context of a high anthropology. After all, if Jesus had any mission statement, it was that he has come not for the righteous, but for sinners. That it is not the, the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. That is the category that we find ourselves in. And yet it is not a category without hope. It is a category that actually opens a person up to the surprise of grace and the reality of God, rather than constantly looking inside for something that will not be found. So that's what the book's about. Aren't you glad you came tonight? There's a lot more I could say about it, but I thought I'd stop and, and take questions and comments or thoughts. Yes, Jim. I read a long time ago that uh, a lot of the, the, the super successful ones in high school, quarterbacks, cheerleaders, you know, big stud people, mm-hmm. that often they kind of, that was a high point, and they kind of fizzled. Yeah. And a lot of the long term success people were the ones who, maybe they weren't the face people, they weren't the most popular, but they're the drivers, they learned how to work hard early. They just swear, I'm, I'm just going to make the more than you do. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones that just keep on going by the others that maybe was too easy and too good. Or there's probably it's nothing to do with high and low anthropology, but it did make me think of that. that it's just maybe some of the others kind of started believing all the press and stuff, and it was just too easy. And some of the others said, I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. I've got lower expectations, but I'm going to accept what I'm going to just keep getting better on. In, in part, you know, the book is an argument for lowering our expectations because our expectations, frankly, could not be higher. Our expectations of marriage, our expectations of the government, our expectations of ourselves have never, ever been higher. They're superhuman and they're, they're, they create nothing but anxiety and self-loathing. And this is a, you know, one, of the, one of the key lines in the beginning of the book is that um, it's often been uh, Christians have, or religious people have been, been told that a a view of human nature that says there's something wrong with you is a, uh, induces shame and self-loathing. I don't think that's true. I think the real driver of shame is the idea that I can do it all, I can be it all, I can check all the boxes, I just haven't figured out how to do it yet. I think that's the real defeating part. To approach life from a point of view that I am incomplete what does it do? Yes, it can momentarily create a, some, some recrimination. But what, if you're incomplete, well, then you need help. It's an invitation to friendship, to collaboration, and ultimately to God. Yes? It, it sounds to me like that the human tendency is to compensate for the low anthropology by aspiring to the high anthropology. Mm. In other words, if I am convicted that I am less than, mm-hmm. then I will be an imposter and live according to a different standard of measure. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an inherent relationship between the two, and they're speaking in the souls and hearts of each one of us, yes. saying, oh, no, you're not. Oh, yes, you are. Oh, no, you're not. And it's a compensating 
I think that's very fair, Gates. I think that's very fair. There's a lot of, um, yeah, I, I, I also think um, this low anthropology puts a premium on things like forgiveness. Uh, and it doesn't expect people to be what they cannot be. This is a very important – I quote my friend R.J. Heyman. Some of you listen to the Mockingbird podcast, and he is uh, very off the cuff sometimes. And he uh, – I, I tell the story in there, which I think is a helpful story because um, it's something that my father has actually hammered home over the years too. Uh, R.J. and I were involved in a church plant in New York that didn't really work out. And there's a lot of wonderful things that happened, yada, yada, yada. It was really painful. We all left. And, um, and I asked uh, – then I, a couple of years later, I'd sort of got my feet underneath me and moved to Virginia, and he had moved to Houston, and he was working at a church in Houston. And um, I visited him because we were at a wedding together, and I said – he was so happy. And he was thriving, and his ministry seemed to be doing really, really well. And there was a new building and a new service, and he just had the wind behind his sails. And I said, RJ, what happened to you? And he said, Dave, I, I, got, I found that I got a lot more patience and love for people when I realized that everyone is insane. <laughs> and that includes me. And I think that that's a wonderful, wonderful thing to say. And my dad always said that he would watch clergy who had a high anthropology get up in the pulpit and they preach the law. Uh, assuming that the person could do the thing they were saying, and it was just like a marriage where you were saying, why won't you just act the way I tell you to? And what it would do was just create resentment. You know, you'd start to hate the people you're preaching to, and they would pick up on that, that they were always failing. And they would either begin to really pretend, and there would be created a, a culture of artifice, or they, um, or they would just leave. <laughs> and, uh, but if you had the, if you came in with the expectation that the people you were speaking to were bound in all sorts of ways that they weren't even aware of as you were the preacher, well, then you would, one, be moved to preach a word of comfort every single week, not ignoring the pain, but actually recognizing it. You would preach the gospel every week. But B, when people felt, people really started to actually change when they felt they no longer had to in order to be loved. Right? And then the most amazing things happen. The most incredible transformations occur. And all of a sudden you have things like the Cranmer House, you know, <laughs> I think. So um, that's, I don't know how we got there from um, expectation. But yeah, I guess I know exactly how we got there. W- what's the next? Mary. Uh, I, I don't read the book, which I very much look forward to. But I did appreciate the term low Yes. And so if you have the high anthropology, we're all children of God in need of affirmation, then they have a low Christology. And that just, that was special for you. Yes, because we, you know, I believe Christianity is a religion of salvation. And only people that need salvation are those who uh, cannot save themselves. And so the testimony of, of the Christians that are the great saints of history, I think, as they get older, is not that they've somehow started to partner with God in some meaningful way. It's usually when you read, I'm talking about like a, you know, Mother Teresa or a, or a Billy Graham or something like that. They're convinced of their own smallness and God's largeness. 
there's a there's as at the end of their life they they move into a deeper dependence on God rather than a more equitable partnership with God or something like that. And I think that's that's really true. I think that that's um, uh, and and that means it's very deeply hopeful to to reclaim a a sense of of smallness as a as a because um, what is what is smallness if we really are creatures that. Um, and we don't actually contribute much to the table, and we're, or, or we know what we're really like, and we're in, this, in terms of this book, we're limited, we're doubled, which means we're conflicted, we're not simple, we're, we're sort of at odds with ourselves, is what William Faulkner said. But thirdly, we're, we're deeply self-centered. Um, if you think that that's what human beings are like, well then you might start to walk around the world thinking, it's, what an incredible thing, there's so much love and beauty. <laughs> Given what I'm actually like on a bad day, Given how I've been treated in the past, given the systems that exist that seem to sort of perpetuate suffering, how amazing is it that so much love and beauty uh, is evident in the world, that God's hand is so remarkably active? If, if you have a high anthropology, you just, are, just become bitter because it's what's called entitlement. You start to think that, uh, that, that you, um, you are owed something. And that the world won't conform to your sense of righteousness. And that's a very uh, disappointing way to live, I think. Ginger. That's, thank you, Ginger. <laughs> thank you, Mary. Um, okay, so I think a high anthropology, one of the ways we know that we are in a culture of a supreme high anthropology, so high anthropology is a culture of cert- certainty and warring certainties where everyone is asked to constantly stake their place in the ground. Have you been asked to, you know, what's your position on such and such? You know, why do I care what, you know, this kid that I went to high school with, what his position is on such and such a question? Or why would anyone care what I think about the war in Ukraine, you know? Um, you know, the second I use a specific example, people will take issue with that. But um, it's, it's so true, though. It, we're living in a time of, of certainties. And that's true on the left and the right. It's true in the, the center as well. I mean, think about how moralized it is to be an undecided voter, for example. Like, no one admits that. I don't, well, I don't know. They both seem pretty great to me. You know, That is not seen as a, as a sign of strength. What's, what's, what's a great, the great insult is wishy-washy. You're a both-sideser. You are a flip-flopper. You know, I think that the, all of, every single one of those insults is not an insult, by the way. But um, when it comes to warring certainties, uh, I was reading an article the other day that we, we've lost any sense of bewilderment. Um, you probably, out of, a, out of our own exhaustion, that people ask so much of today that it's just too exhausting to constantly interrogate oneself and to, uh, you know, deal in nuance and, and maybe uncertainty. So we just... Make our decision. This is what we believe. Hell or high water. You are wrong. I am right. Yada, 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 yada. Um, and y- it creates absolute boundary between people. So I think a, uh, 
Low anthropology believes that you cannot know the future and you actually cannot be a full, that only God is the master of, uh, has comprehensive mastery of any given situation. It does not negate strong positions and convictions about things, but it does mean that no matter what the position is, there's always a 0.5.1% chance that I could be wrong. And if you have a problem thinking about that in terms of politics, think about it in terms of other people. It means that there's always one more drawer I need to open before I can make a, a, a judgment of you that's final and completely trustworthy. But then go take it a step further. Think about it in terms of yourself. There's always one more drawer left before I can comp- conclude with complete certainty that I am a POS, right? <laughs> Wrong use of one. But it, this, is, this sort of humility, people, I've already dealt with the criticism that I'm undermining senses of right and wrong. Uh, I, I mean, we are in so far away from that in our culture. Uh, I'm just trying to inject a 1% to 2% possibility that we might not be right about everything. And that the way that we think about tobacco today will be the way that our children think about something we're, we, we're not questioning right now. That's, that's called epistemological modesty. And so I, I also use it in terms of dep- depression. Um, I think like, because um, you think about certainty in terms of, uh, you know, cultural discourse. If you, the experience of depression in my own life has always been the foreclosing of the future. Like you start to see there's no possibility of ever feeling better. That's what it means to feel it's like to be depressed, is to be in a black cloud where the vision, it's completely opaque and you cannot see your way clear. Now that's the, the, the existence of depression is evidence of a low anthropology. Everyone is saddled with conditions that they did not ask for, but inherited. And that we're all subject to, you know, you know uh, if you're a simian, losing your hair, you know, um, or your body breaking down or something like that. But, <laughs> um, but we are also, uh, where was I going with that? I shouldn't have mentioned Simeon. But depression is that uh, the, the experience of it is that you uh, embrace a certainty about the future that is simply not available to an incomplete person with a very specific point of view and context. And so for me, it's actually been really helpful in the midst of the feeling of ironclad certainty about blackness in the future, thinking, actually, you're not God. And that's what um, I've been reading this amazing new book called Faith, Hope, and Carnage by Nick Cave. And it came out last week. And he is a person who's lost two children. Uh, he's a singer-songwriter, a very, uh, very eloquent man. And he says that the number one thing, he, uh, question he gets from grieving people is, will, I, will it ever get better? Will I ever not feel this way? And he says, I can't tell you how you will feel, but the resounding answer to the question, does it ever get better, is yes. It does. And sometimes we need another person to say that. that the certainty you feel about your present situation is not actually ironclad. That's what a low anthropology, that's how a low anthropology forges hope out of the bonds of limitation. John, what, what do you think? Yeah. <laughs>
That's who my dad would do one of these. Things. <laughs> There is hope. You know, the other thing, I'll, I'll ask a couple more questions, but the, um, one of the things I was, I've been thinking about is I've had to do a lot of, although I'm not ordained, uh, because I work with college students and have for years, they're all getting married. And um, there was a big backlog of weddings during COVID, right? And, in, and in, in Charlottesville, I think, I don't know if you know this, it's the number two wedding destination in the country. It's like a meeting point between North and South. Um, and it's beautiful. But so I've had to do like something like nine weddings in the past uh, four or five months. And I love doing it. But, uh, and, and I talk about a wedding in a different way at the beginning of this. But what I've noticed is that um, when you go to any kind of uh, rehearsal dinner and you listen to the toasts, uh, none of them are about how great the person is. Like, I mean, there's a little bit of that. They, no one would be here in case you didn't love the person. But when they actually get up to talk, and the girls are usually nicer than the boys, but the guys, are, the, 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 it's always like, let me tell you about this time we were in our sweatpants, and so-and-so came over to the house, and none of us were ready, and we scrambled, and it was a joke, and then they went on the date, and it was incredible. And no one knew that we were actually just completely flying by the seat of our pants. Or the guys, it's like, well, let me tell you how nervous he was before he, he went out on this date with her the first time and how he was sweating bullets and he had too much to drink or he did such and such a thing. And, and you, you hear the love communicated not in terms of respect for accomplishments or admiration. You hear it always in terms of s- stories of humiliation <laughs> and shame. But the, because love is involved... You trust that they're loving because it's they know the person. What they're trying to tell you in those stories is, I know this person, and to know them is not just to know them when they're dressed up and they got their makeup on or their tuxedo on. To know them is to know them when that one time junior year when such and such happened, and let me tell you, it's a miracle that no one here was there, right? This is so true, and that's why, living in a university town, that's why I'm, this is why... Uh, everyone's becoming friends with each other, lifelong friends that they're still talking to years later, and everyone's sort of coming back to Charlottesville to, um, or Tuscaloosa, as the case may be. It's um, not necessarily because they got good grades. It's because this is the place where they were a human being, and other people saw them and didn't turn their backs away. And so, in that se- that's what. So then, when I see. Low anthropology is simply the acknowledgement of how love actually works in the world, and that that the pattern of of the way that love is received, which is the, through grace, is imprinted to the heart of the universe. And that's why, as a Christian, I have such confidence about the grace of God being the great force for good 
in the world. So I have, how about, what, are the, what time is it? Raymond. Um, 7.52. When I was into the liturgies and certainly of the, the prayer book, I think. You see this over and over again. And um, people ask me, how can we... Uh, so I was asked the other night, well, how do you uh, instill this sort of idea of low anthropology in a way that's not fully shaming of folks for their deficiencies? And I said, well, I mean, I, I, it happens for me every Sunday for about an hour where you come in. The first thing you say is that God talk all desires known, from whom no secrets are hid. Then you go through the act of confession, after, after which point you, you, were, you were absolved of your sins. You were, you were assured of God's love for you. And uh, if you're a person that takes communion, then you're assured in that way, you're fed in that way. And, that's, and then you're told to go out and walk in the good works that God has prepared for you to walk in, which is, again, not something you were generated, but something you've been given. So... Um, I thank you for your comment. I do see this as, as, as part of the church's work in the world, um, is to acknowledge the reality of what it's like to be a human being and proclaim God's love and the saving message of the gospel in the midst of that, not apart from it. And I do have a long section there about how low anthropology works in religion, because high anthropology in religion is not uh, funny at all. It's, it, it ruins people's lives. And it, um, it creates suicidal despair. And high anthropology usually takes some form of, you're a sinner in need of God's grace, now stop being a sinner. And instead of saying, look, instead of saying, look, to, look to the Lord to forgive, to save you, look to the Holy Spirit to generate works of love, it says, just stop it. And you better stop it. <laughs> if you don't stop it now, stop it tomorrow. And all of a sudden, you, it pits a person against themselves in a way that is, um, creates hiding and splitting and refugees and deconstru- what's known today as deconstruction. But almost every time I hear stories of uh, supreme disillusionment with the church, it has to do with some form of high anthropology that was foisted on them after they become a Christian. And that's a critique that we've probably heard many, many times. But as the years go on, I've, I've thought at one point that it was a straw man or that... Um, we were making too much of it, but as I get older, I think you, you can't really um, you can't really overstate the truth that that how how hurtful that is to people.
Yeah, I mean, this is why people tend to find this kind of transformative grace more reliably in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, but there are churches that, that I think, em, em, em embrace this. I, I think that, generally speaking, that the higher you get up in a Christian hierarchy, the less allowance there is to be a person. Um, and that that's really uh, bad, and it creates scandal after scandal after scandal after scandal. Um, so I think that's sad. I think that people experience, when they can't, don't experience it in church, they find it other places. They find it sort of absolving. Uh, I can be myself with these folks. And I think that that's better than nothing. I, I'm at the point in my life where I think going, not going to, it's better to go, to not go to church than to go to a bad church that will um, make you hate other people yourself and hate God. Because um, I think that's what, that's what happens. Um, but I also believe in a God that's larger than the church and doesn't just work within church walls. And I see God's work uh, in the lives of real people with a, a alarming frequency. It gives me major league hope for the world in spite of the truth of what it's like to be me. I just wondering, uh, kind of feedbacking off that, as the book's out now, Uh, high anthropology is driven in the church the same reason it's driven anywhere else. It, it, gives, it flatters people and it gives them control. And we always like things that give us control. Um, and we always like to be flattered. And so I, don't, I think that just when, you, when you're asking God to bless that sort of self-righteousness, it becomes, or you, have, you feel like you have divine backing for your own virtue, you get into really, really dangerous territory. Um, but the criticism, I've, I haven't received much criticism, to be honest with you. The most people, the, what I wanted was a book that I could give to the guys in my exercise group that think I'm crazy for being a Christian. And um, they, so far, they're all texting me, telling me how much they love it. And it's not a downer. I wanted a book that I could give to my 68-year-old colleague, Mary Lou, who's lived about 15 lives, is in recovery, and uh, has a husband in the advanced stages of Alzheimer's and I wanted her uh, and I wanted the reaction that I got from her was that she felt better with every page and she felt a deeper sense of God with her uh, and that um, deeper sense of hope and recognition and that's what I've wanted for the book I, I don't know if I, 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 I did get one piece of criticism uh, in a publication that was Wanting it to be more Christian or something, I, I don't, I don't, I don't only sort of understand. Uh, I can only presume that they don't live in the same world that I do. <laughs> <laughs>
this is the partly this book though if you if you grew up in a context in which you were hammered home with sin that you were sort of a worm and that it was also up to you to be better and that you had it within yourself so I call that to be an actually a high that's a high anthropology mm-hmm. that's not a low anthropology um, but that's a sort of a tends to be a hyper fundamentalist version of, of, of anthropology if you are going to there's a certain allergy that you're going to have to any kind of thing that smacks of shame or negativity when it relates to the human spirit but I didn't grow up in that. I grew up in, I mean, I was here for a little while, but I was at boarding school while we lived here. And I was at a wonderful school, but it basically told me there was nothing wrong with me and that I'm really special. And I, I mean, I am pretty special. <laughs> but what I mean, though, is that it was like the, 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 the resounding chorus that I received as a member of a sort of a... a private school, East Coast world, was that I was amazing. And if the world could, I was like Jerry Seinfeld's mother. Who couldn't like you? You're so, who doesn't like you? You're so great. And, um, and then you get out in the world and you do something that you're not proud of or you experience other people doing that to you and you think, am I the only one? that they all, Did they all lie to me? Like, what happened? And um, this is a driver, and I quote, uh, Lori Gottlieb had an amazing article in The Atlantic about how to land your kids in therapy. And it's all about never allow them to experience any kind of pain, disappointment, lack, or sense that they are not perfect. High anthropology was landing all of her clients with a crippling sense of perfectionism uh, that they felt any kind of personal failure was the end of the world. And then you have undergraduates at UPenn, you know, getting a C and thinking they want to end their life. I mean, that's what you're dealing with. And so if, if I could write a book, you know, that, that, that spoke with mercy and recognition to that, to, to, to 19-year-old David Zoll, well, then that's enough. Yes, Susan. And I've been in a congregation where you walk out every Sunday feeling like you're worse than dirt because you haven't done enough to save the world. <laughs> You've been listening to Sarah Condon, I think. Yes, the, the sort of more progressive form of high anthropology tends to rail on people for doing, to, for being collectively better. And the more conservative form rails on people for being personally better. They both create a different, they create burnout. One seems to create a little bit more suicide, but the one, the other one uh, creates uh, people that want to have nothing to do with religion because it's, I, need, I don't need more homework. I already know what I'm not doing, and uh, I, I'd rather just sleep in on Sunday morning. Tommy, this is the last one. Sorry, Jack, you can talk later. Uh, I'm a lot of pressure now. Uh, <laughs> so I, I Quotes, but if I were going to get one, uh, it would be where you say, uh, There is no them, there's only us. Uh, I just really, that, you know, that idea of um, 
can really only like put people away from us and, and say it's like those people are there. That that always comes from high anthropology. Um, and you know, I like in uh, I've heard people say you know like this, the idea of like people do the best they can with what they have mm-hmm. as a way to sort of like address resentments that you have with someone. Like if you resent somebody, try to look at it as like they they're doing the best they can with what they have and. Um, and I think the only way, you know, only low anthropology can sort of get you to that place where you actually have to be effective. Um, the other thing the, the low anthropology would say they're doing no more better with what they have than you are with what you have. Because they may not be doing the best with what they have, but you aren't either. That's, 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 that's really what a low anthropology would say. Yeah. When you when you say, well, there are people out there who aren't doing the best they can with what they have. Yeah. That's sort of counter to the idea that like, but I don't know the whole story, right? Yeah. So yeah. It's hard for me to ever kind of say that. So anyway, but no, I, it a low anthropology really does let God be God, and that's the great gift I think of a low anthropology. You 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 don't have all the answers. You don't have all the facts about your about other people or yourself. And so the withholding of judgment does not mean judgment doesn't exist. Uh, it is simply a not you in your job description. And that's great news, especially if you want to actually get along with most people in the world because they're not you. Um, that's uh, a lot to share tonight. So I'm happy to keep signing books, and I'm really grateful. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.